Welcome to Arise Church, where we exist so you can experience God. We pray that this sermon blesses you, encourages you, and helps you to take one step closer to Jesus. Enjoy the message. Hey, thank you. Good morning. I sure appreciate Pastor Brent letting me be with you again. If I could, let me introduce to you my lovely wife, Renee. Honey, would you please stand? The better and obviously the prettier half. I'm especially grateful to be able to talk to you what you are already clearly talking about, transformation, redemption, the power of God evident in a human life. I'd like to specifically talk about how we are responding to the potential for transformation in the lives of people who are LGBTQ. There is both a political movement, which we often focus on, but in doing so, we can forget that there are individuals as well. There have always been individuals who have a few realizations. Early in life, frequently, because we are born in sin, people come to realize they have certain tendencies or desires. In some cases, they realize those desires are homosexual in nature, and then a decision has to be made. I am either going to yield to this and live it out, or I am going to say no to it. And frequently the decision is made to yield to it, which is why we have a movement in which people come out and say, this is who I am. I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm trans, and I'm proud. But then frequently another realization comes by the grace of God, the realization that this is not what I was intended to be. I may realize that this is how I feel. Now the question becomes, is what I feel my destiny? Is what I feel what my creator intended me to feel? Or is it possible that I have missed the mark? Now that is not a new story. As long ago as when Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, he made two declarations. One, don't kid yourselves, this is wrong. Neither adulterers, nor fornicators, nor drunkards, nor idolaters, nor homosexuals shall inherit the kingdom. And then he added another declarative statement, and such were past tense, some of you. So he recognized even then when he addressed the body of Christ, he was addressing a people who came from a multitude of backgrounds and had dealt with a multitude of different issues and something had happened to cause them to face those issues. And that is the wonderful something I call but God, the interruption. We so often speak of Jehovah's different characteristics, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my healer, Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace. I like to talk about Jehovah interrupt us, <laughs> the God who interrupts our lives. Because that's what happened, isn't it? At some critical point in your life, as a born-again believer, you came to the realization that there is a creator, that your creator is interested in you, but that there is a problem between you and your creator, and that problem must be dealt with for you to have the life you were intended to have, and thereby you accepted the claims and promises of Christ and were born again. Good heavens, we didn't think this stuff up ourselves, though, did we? We were interrupted. And this is where it gets interesting to me. Whenever God interrupts, we see this in both Testaments, whether he's interrupting an individual or a nation, he never says, um, hi, 
I'm God and I just want you to know everything's great the way it is. Maintain the status quo. No, whenever God interrupts a life, he says in essence, I call you to something more than what you are. I call you to something more than what you have settled for. And I am so grateful for that interruption. I'd like to talk about that. I'd like to talk especially about how the body of Christ responded to me during different phases of my response to that interruption. I'd like to talk about what worked well, what didn't always work well, and where we stand today and how we can continue to respond with grace and truth. I call it journeyed. My interruption began in 1971 when I was 16 years old. By then, I had already begun identifying myself as gay. Now, in 1971, that could have gotten you killed. Nonetheless, the gay rights movement was just starting to take off. I had realized for years that I was attracted to the same sex, and I was beginning to find what I felt like was freedom in saying, yes, this is who I am. I was engaging with adult men, meeting for clandestine liaisons out in West Hollywood, California, having lived in Southern California, and so I began to embrace a gay identity, but I also enjoyed dating girls, and one lovely girl asked me on a date to uh, go to a backwards dance where the girls would ask the guys. She was one of our homecoming princesses. I was very flattered. I said yes. We went and had a terrific time. I took her home, kissed her goodnight, and said, I'd love to see you again, and she said, I would like that because I'd like to take you to church. And I said, church. <laughs> Which was unfamiliar territory to me, but I was pretty sure that's a place where people went when they were very old or very ugly, one of the two. <laughs> and here's this babe asking me to church. And I thought, well, this is intriguing, okay. That Sunday, we drove out to Costa Mesa, California to a little church called Calvary Chapel, pastored by a man named Chuck Smith. And this little building was bursting at the seams with hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hippies who had just been born again and were bouncing off the walls in the new joy of the Lord. This came to be known as the Jesus Movement, which absolutely exploded across the country at that time. And to walk into that little church at that time in the midst of that revival as a non-believer was to feel something tangible. Whatever that something was, I now know, of course, what he was, but at the time I just thought, wow. Something has set all of these people aglow and it is not LSD. <laughs> this is real. They love each other. They love a God that I don't even believe in. This is transformative, this is tangible, I can feel it. And for the first time when Pastor Church preached, I heard the claims of Jesus Christ, this is who I am the promises of Jesus Christ, this is what I will do, and the requirements of Jesus Christ, you must be born again, and if any one of you will follow me, you will deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. And those claims, promises, and demands would haunt me, haunt me as the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit does, convicted, because I realized if I say yes to this, I'm gonna have to say no to my entire self-identification. I'm gay. I have begun to enjoy the gay lifestyle, and now that's going to have to be taken from me. And yet, I was equally haunted by something very clear and sobering. What does a prophet a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So finally I said yes, and I was born again, and it was a rebirth that was, as all rebirths are, 
wow. <laughs> Beyond description, I got into fellowship. I was in church five, six nights a week. I couldn't get enough of Bible study, couldn't get enough of prayer. Completely renounced the sin in my life, the sexual sin, the pornography, the acting out, the drinking, the dope, the cigarettes, even my language cleaned up and whoo. But there was a problem. I continued to have feelings that I didn't want to have. And I felt like if I had really been born again, that should eradicate all of my temptations. So if I'm living obediently and I am filled with the Holy Spirit and I am a new creature in Christ and my body is now a temple of the Holy Spirit, why do I still have temptations? And I had a faulty understanding of the reality that the spirit wars against the flesh and the flesh wars against the spirit and that is the reality of life for any born again believer. Our old nature wars against the new nature. Got it, but I didn't get it at that time. I thought, again, Joe Dallas is a failure. And that's when I became what I call a silent struggler. A silent struggler. In general, I would say a silent struggler is any born-again believer who is sitting in the church thinking, if all of these people around me knew what I deal with, what I think, what I feel, could they ever respect me? Would they still accept me? Would they still love me? And because at that time, nobody did what we're doing this morning. Believe me, nobody in church in 1971 was talking about homosexuality the way we're talking about it right now. And for that reason, I thought, I am the only person in the body of Christ who has this problem. I'm the freak. I'm the loser. I'm the failure. Try harder. And so I did. I fasted. I prayed. I, I read more scripture. I disciplined myself. I witnessed more. I was actually unbearable. I mean, I was one of those, you know. If you came within my sphere of influence, I would grab you and preach to you. If you walked away, I would hit you on the head and drag you back. So there was no lack of zeal in this kid. But after about seven years, I got tired. I thought I am still struggling. I still have feelings that I don't think I'm supposed to have. And at that time, I must say, when I would hear a Christian talk about homosexuality, it was usually in the most contemptuous of terms. Generally, people seemed to feel at that time that this was a problem only non-believers had. It existed outside of the church. There was no such thing as a Christian who wrestled silently with such temptations. And so I felt more and more alienated from the church until finally, in early 1978, I gave myself permission. And let me underscore that concept, I gave myself permission, because oftentimes I think when we talk about sexual sin, we talk about it like it was an accident. Like, ooh, I slipped. Or I, I suddenly found myself, no, I, it's like, like fornication mugged me when I was walking down the street, no. No, I made a decision. I gave myself permission to use pornography. I remember the night as clear as day when I simply said, I give myself permission, regardless of what God thinks, regardless of how it may grieve the Holy Spirit, I wanna look at porn again. It's been seven years, I miss it. I heard about this new thing called adult bookstores. I'm going to go visit one. And my heart hardened. And in that darkened frame of mind, I opened myself up to every kind of rebellion and deception. And you know, to this day in looking at what I did, I'm not, so shocked at what I actually did, although it was terrible, what is shocking to me to this day is how easy it was to do it. 
All it took was a decision. People often think if someone makes a terrible decision, there must have been a long, extraordinary buildup to that point. Well, sometimes there is, but sometimes all it takes is a look. I'm not sure that there was some profound psychological thing going on in King David's life when he was up on the rooftop and looked and saw a beautiful woman bathing. All it took was a look and a decision. I will. I give myself permission. I will take. I will indulge. I will. And so I did. And that was the beginning of a downward spiral that was really breathtaking in its swiftness. I began entering into a very promiscuous form of what we call the gay lifestyle. I certainly don't want to give the impression that all homosexual men are promiscuous or, or uh, involve themselves in drunkenness and drug abuse, but I did. That was my choice, and I did. I tried to drown myself in excesses and in pleasure, and that's when I became out and proud. When someone goes from a silent struggler to out and proud, they are basically saying, I am giving up on repressing this. I'm now going to claim it. What I have wrestled with in private, I now wave as a banner, because it seems to me my only choice is to drown in shame over these feelings or to proclaim them as a primary identifying characteristic. And this is one of the reasons you may have friends who are lesbian or gay or family members who seem almost unreasonably proud, like they're going into overkill. I get it. Because it feels like such a relief when you finally say, no more secret keeping, this is who I am. I became out and proud. And as an out and proud gay man, I declared myself as someone who was no longer going to apologize for his homosexuality. This is my life. This is me. But after about a year of living that way, promiscuously, overindulging in alcohol, reckless lifestyle, I missed a lot of what I had walked away from. I missed church fellowship. I missed the communion of the spirit. I missed worship. I missed aspects of Christianity, but I was not willing to submit myself entirely to the Lordship of Christ, particularly when it came to my sexuality. And so I was stuck with a dilemma, gay or Christ. And that was when at a bar I went to frequently, a man said to me, you don't have to choose between the two. There's a church in the area where you can be both gay and Christian. They have a new interpretation of the Bible, and you can learn how you can be a born-again believer who is openly homosexual and is pleasing to God. And to me, that sounded like an answer to prayer. That fall, I visited the Metropolitan Community Church, which was probably the first pro-gay church in existence in our nation. And when I walked into that congregation, I saw something that fascinated me. I saw openly homosexual men and women of all ages. Now, all I had seen of the gay community up to that point was what I saw in the bar scene, a bunch of guys in tight Levi's and T-shirts. And now I'm seeing men and women of all ages dressed very conservatively. And the first thing I noticed was the choir was singing a gospel anthem by Bill and Gloria Gaither, The King is Coming. I noticed that the worship was made up of songs I was familiar with. People were lifting their hands, and I thought, wow, if it weren't for the fact that there are some couples here of the same sex who were holding hands, I'd never know I'm in a gay church. This almost feels like a spirit-filled church. And it began to dawn on me, perhaps I could adopt this as my identity, a gay Christian, not just an out and proud gay man, 
but gay and religious. Gay and religious means a person has adopted a reinterpretation of the Bible. Now, time prohibits getting into all the ins and outs of that reinterpretation. If it's something you're interested in, I'll pull a shameless plug for my own book table, but I do have a free book, ebook I'd love to send you that explains some of the arguments that the pro-gay theology is based on. But when I heard that reinterpretation of scripture, what appealed to me was it told me what I wanted to hear. When people are desperate and they're already compromised, they are ripe for deception. Now, deception is a powerful tool, isn't it? Jesus said there would come a time when deception would be so great, if possible, the very elect would be deceived. And Paul told Timothy, there's going to come a time when people will not endure sound doctrine. As in, your account has been suspended because what you said violated community standards, you know? Yes, there we are. The power of deception, though, I believe is something we are especially susceptible to when we are already compromised. I was not innocently deceived, I was in rebellion. And because I was in rebellion, I was susceptible to that deception. And when I heard that deception, I said, okay, this is me. I am religious and gay. I'm a gay Christian. And that's when I found something also fascinating about the new church I aligned myself with. Everybody there literally was what I call a former. Not one person I met was born again in that church. Everyone there was a former Southern Baptist, former Assembly of God, former Calvary Chapel, former Foursquare, former Lutheran, former Methodist. All of us had this in common. We had all silently struggled in Bible-believing churches. We all finally gave up the struggle and said, I'm going to embrace my homosexuality. And then we decided we missed our Christian identity, but we weren't willing to relinquish our sexuality to him. So we stepped into this place where we decided to try to become gay and Christian. All of us had had a genuine born-again experience. All of us had known the gifting of the Spirit in our lives. All of us had tasted of the Word of God, and all of us had decided we will accept this revision of the Word of God. And to us, that seemed like the answer. And to me, for a while, it really felt like the answer. I felt even more relief than I had when I came out. I felt as though this is the final consummation of all of my conflict. I no longer have to choose between my sexuality and my relationship with him. I will cause both of them to be in harmony with each other. I learned the pro-gay interpretation of the scripture. I began teaching the pro-gay interpretation of the scripture. And within a few years, I was on staff with the church. And I was regularly preaching at the church and teaching Bible studies and, and oftentimes just teaching basic scriptural uh, didactic studies and sometimes teaching pro-gay studies, but basically my identity was wrapped up in both my sexuality and now in the way I had brought the faith into a place where it was conducive to my sexuality. In other words, I had basically said, I will love you, Lord, on my terms. And I stayed in that frame of mind for a number of years, thinking that that would be the answer. But I noticed something evolving in me. At first, I thought it was just restlessness, but then I realized it was more than restlessness, it was anger. I was a gay Christian, but I was not satisfied just being a gay Christian. I wanted you to tell me it was okay for me to be a gay Christian. 
And when I found that more and more Christians were unwilling to do that, I was getting angrier and angrier. And right around that time, the late 70s, early 80s, more and more vocal leaders within the body of Christ were starting to address the gay rights movement. And because they were starting to address the gay rights movement, I thought, they're talking about me. They're saying this is sin. They're saying this is wrong. Now, what was the problem? I think you know. You have a conscience and you have the Holy Spirit. Both of them will speak to you a word of correction, won't they? I love the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'm not always crazy about what he wants to say to me, but I love his presence, feels good. But sometimes that voice is not in agreement with what I want. And when either the Spirit of God or my God-given conscience testify against something in me, I have to make a decision. Either listen to that and yield to it or try to shut that sucker up. And if I want to shut that sucker up, if you come along saying something that is in agreement with that sucker, not only is my conscience the enemy, now you are the enemy. And I finally decided to go from religious to militant. A militant lesbian or gay person is someone who has an agenda to normalize homosexuality combined with intolerance for any opposition to that agenda. I'm not so worried about the fact that people have an agenda, although I disagree with the agenda. What I believe is the most dangerous part of the modern LGBTQ movement is its intolerance for any opposing viewpoints and its demand to steamroll over anybody who is in opposition to that agenda. But I came into that sort of scorched earth policy kind of thinking because I truly felt I cannot live in a world where anybody disapproves of me. Therefore, you must approve. And it's somewhat like, I think, what we, we read in the book of Acts. Two interesting instances that Luke records of how people dealt with a conscience that was pricked. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching that bold sermon. And the way Luke words it in the original Greek, the people who heard it were cut to their conscience. And they responded properly when they said, okay, so what should we do? And Peter said, repent, be born again in the name of Jesus Christ and baptized for the remission of sins. That's beautiful. Now, a few chapters later, old Stephen is preaching an equally confrontive sermon to a bunch of council members who do not want to hear what he has to say when he's saying, you not only missed the Messiah, you killed the Messiah. And Luke used the same Greek terminology when he said they were cut to the conscience. But in this case, the guys went ballistic. And they murdered him ruthlessly. Why? Because the conscience was telling them something they didn't want to hear. And in the interest of silencing the conscience, they also had to silence whoever was coming into agreement with that conscience. No wonder so many of them are so angry at us. Now, I will grant that there are times Christians have spoken irresponsibly on this issue. That is true. I think at times, some Christians have spoken of contempt with lesbians and gays in ways that was only alienating, not godly. In some cases, Christians have been pharisaical in their approach to this. In some cases, some Christians have operated with a double standard when we say adultery is a sin and pornography is a sin and fornication is a sin and homosexuality is a sin. Well, of course, that's a double standard people pick up on and that's not a godly response to all of this. However, I think it is often true that we are being accused of being hateful 
only because we are holding a position we must hold. And let's not kid ourselves on this point. We must hold it. There are some issues that I would call secondary issues, doctrinal issues that we can agree to disagree on within the body of Christ. For heaven's sake, somebody's right about the rapture. <laughs> I know where I stand personally, but I mean, I can't imagine us breaking fellowship over that if you're pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. But on something as basic and foundational as the definition of marriage and family, you'll recognize that in virtually every New Testament book, sexual sin is named and condemned. That alone tells you that if anything is considered by Scripture, the Word of God, to be a sexual transgression, it is a very serious matter, be it fornication, adultery, incest, prostitution, pornography, or homosexuality, a very serious matter. The first recorded case of church discipline we see had to do with unrepentant sexual sin in the church of Corinth. And you'll notice Paul seemed angrier at the church than at the individual when he said, what is the matter with you that you are openly tolerating sexual immorality? Now, this is not to say we tell lesbian and gay people who come to our church, oh, no, you're not wanted here. Of course, wanted, of course they're wanted. Good grief, please come. But when somebody says, I want you to legitimize this, no. Now, this we cannot do because that is the equivalent of coming into alignment with someone else's sin. And Paul told the Ephesians, no, 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 do not have fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, which is exactly what light does. Well, as an activist, I didn't want to hear any of that. I mean, I had a severe intolerance for any form of disapproval because I wanted my conscience to be mollified. I also think that adopting the gay militant position, where I started going out and debating at college campuses and marching in the parades and waving the banner, to be honest, I felt pumped. And I think there is something in all of us that needs to be a part of something noble, some noble cause. I remember when I was a teenager and first studied the Holocaust and finally understood what really happened in Europe during the Second World War, I remember being captivated by the European underground, those brave women and men who sheltered Jewish families and would smuggle Jewish people out of the country to safety. And I thought, how awesome to have had a real villain to fight, a real victim to protect, and a cause to be a part of. And I envied that. And so later in life, when gay militancy presented itself as a cause, I thought, sign me up. This is one of the reasons I believe today many of our people, especially our young people, are very susceptible to causes. Because when somebody says there's a villain to fight, and there's an oppressed people to protect, and there's a cause to join, a lot of people say that speaks to a need I have. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that need. I think the problem is 2022 is, among other things, a season of intellectual laziness. People just don't check things out. We've lost the art of the Bereans who were noble enough to say that sounds good, Paul, but let me check and see for myself what the Word of God has to say. And so often today, then, if you wave a cause in front of somebody and you say there's a villain and there's the oppressed and here's the cause, people go, just for the sake of being part of something righteous, yes, sign me up. And they address it with all of the fervor of the uninformed but the very zealous. And with that zeal, I pursued gay militancy. 
until around the end of 1983 when I started feeling uncomfortable for reasons I couldn't quite identify, which was ironic because my life was going beautifully. I mean, I, I, I loved the job I had. I, I had a nice apartment. My social life was active. I was in the best shape I'd ever been in. Uh, everything in my life was exactly where I wanted it to be, and yet I started waking up at 1 or 2 a.m. with this panicked feeling, short of breath, <gasps> something's wrong. And that something's wrong finally morphed into a, something a little clearer. Two questions that started haunting me. One, am I in the will of God? Two, does it matter? Am I in the will of God? Not just does God love me, I knew I was loved by God. Had I ever been born again? Yes, I knew I had been born again. That wasn't the question. Was I in the will of God? And if I wasn't, did I care? Because if I didn't, what had become of me? And that would keep me up nights. And that would make me restless during the day. And sometimes I'd find tears starting to stream down my face in the middle of the workday. And of course, the conviction was becoming more and more relentless until finally in early 1984, I realized, okay, I am willing to finally ask myself the hard question. For the last seven years, have I been wrong? Turned out all the lights in my apartment and slipped into a very holy moment. You know what those are like, you've had yours. When you realize God, I am going to get very real with you right now. I am going to dare to say like David did, deliver me from hidden faults. Search me out, see if there be a wicked way in me. Bring to light what needs to be brought to light. I am scared to death, but I am asking you to do this, which we must do. How do we ever burst our bubbles if we don't ask him to show us what the bubbles are? On my own, I'm not gonna identify my own bubbles. I get used to my bubbles. This is where it gets interesting again. If I see one of my bubbles on you, I think it's awful. That's terrible of you. It doesn't look good on you. But if I see one of my bubbles on me, oh, it's kind of cute. It's not so bad. You know. So I needed the Spirit of God to show me what I had been trying so hard not to face. And then that house of cards just came crashing down and I hit the floor and I realized I have been kidding myself. And that was the beginning of a deep and a painful revelation about Joe Dallas. I had to realize I have not been innocently kidding myself. I have been deliberately kidding myself and I have been deliberately kidding myself because I have cared only about myself and I have cared only about myself at the expense of my relationship with God and there it was. What God showed me that night was the terrible truth that homosexuality was not the great sin in my life. The great sin in my life was I had made a God out of Joe Dallas. And out of that idolatry sprang all sin because in that moment in 1978 when I said, I will, I joined spiritual forces with the one who originally said, I will. I will ascend into heaven. I will be like the Most High. It was Luciferian in its tenor. And that's when I began to realize, well, that's why the sin of rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Because it has its links to a created being who said to God, I don't care what you think, I will. Now, repenting of homosexuality was relatively simple. 
compared to the lifelong work I am still doing in repenting of the sin of putting Joe Dallas above God. That is a long-term challenge. I am better than I was and not where I need to be. As is so often true, the sexual or behavioral sin in our life, be it the booze or the dope or the gambling or the violence or the sexual sin, whatever it may be, is so often symptomatic of a deep problem of the soul which needs healing and correcting. The repentance of the symptom is where it must start, but that's only the start. That is when I became repentant. The repentant is the person who says, okay, yes, I am lesbian, I'm gay, I'm attracted to the same sex. I know that it is wrong to give in to that. So here I am, church. What do I do now? Now this to me is critical. When God calls a man to repent, he also calls the church to receive. Both, both. So when Saul of Tarsus gets knocked off his horse and says, Lord, what would you have me to do? A Barnabas is told, go. Extend the right hand of fellowship to that man. And I will be forever grateful for the fact that there were those who extended the right hand of fellowship to me. When I was a militant, there were Christians who approached me, and I will always bless them for what they did. They came to me in love. I heard some Christians speak irresponsibly, as I said, but there were some who came to me and said, Joe, do you really believe in what you're doing or do you just want to believe in what you're doing? What happened to your understanding of the Bible? What happened to obedience to God? What happened to the conformity of the Holy Spirit working in your life? And I had all my cultic answers prepared and I tried to appear confident, but thank God they loved me enough to experience the tension of telling me the truth. This is where I fear we, we, we could swing into one of two extremes. On the one hand, a lot of people are afraid to say anything about this. Too volatile, too messy, too controversial. People will reject me, people won't like me. If I speak the truth about God's intention for human sexuality, I might be ostracized. That is the fear of man. And according to Proverbs, the fear of man brings a snare. It literally limits us from being the people of power we are meant to be. But then there's also the wrath of man which James says does not work the righteousness of God. And sometimes we get pushed so far by modern trends that we think, oh, okay, you want to see homophobia? I'll show you homophobia. And of course, that's the last thing we need to be doing. In between, there is grace and truth, not choosing between the two, living out both of them. When I repented, I had to relocate immediately. I knew if I stayed in the city I was in, there was no way I was going to be able to continue walking with any integrity. Too many triggers, too many familiar areas, too much bonding I had already done with too many men. I was too engrossed in the gay community and the gay identity. I knew the next morning I would have to go and explain myself. I knew two things God had made clear to me. One, you must always be honest about what you feel. Don't ever again pretend to be more than what you are because that's what set you up to sin in the first place. And it's true. I wouldn't confess my temptations to anyone. You know how that plays out. The temptation you refuse to confess eventually becomes the secret sin you start to indulge, which eventually becomes the bondage that overtakes you. And God said, you must never go there again. Be honest about what you feel. But second, you are never again, never, to refer to yourself as a gay man. Never.
You may say that you have temptations of any kind, including homosexual temptations, nothing wrong with that. But your identity is in me, not your sexual temptation. Always remember that. So I had to go to my gay friends and explain, I've had a bit of an epiphany here. I've come to realize this is not what God intended for my life. Well, there's no way you can say that and keep getting invited to parties, I mean, come on. Because you're obviously saying, and I think you're wrong too. I recognized that. It was a lonely time. I relocated to another county, found a good Christian counselor, got involved with a good Bible-believing church, and it was the beginning of recovery for me. At that time, particularly the men in the church welcomed me. And this I want to emphasize especially. Many people today will say, well, what works? What do we need to do? How can we develop the right kind of specialized ministry to deal with people who are dealing with homosexuality? And my answer is generally, you do what you're already doing with people of all kinds. You disciple them with the word of God and the love of Christ constraining you, which is exactly what the men in my church did. They knew nothing about homosexuality. In retrospect, I don't really believe they could spell the word homosexuality. <laughs> However, they were good brothers. I knew I had to be honest with them. They were taking me in and I said, look, this is where I've been. This is what I've done. I've had multiple partners, I've identified as gay, I've been working against you guys, I've been a militant and an activist. I am dealing with these temptations and these feelings, and when I repented of that sin, I had no idea where God was going to lead me. I assume I'm gonna live the rest of my life single and celibate and try to be obedient. That's the best I can do. But I have desires I wish I didn't have. I have memories I wish I didn't have. I have images in my head I wish I didn't have, and I have temptations. And they said, well, golly. You have feelings you don't want to have. You sometimes have thoughts you don't want to have. Sometimes your desires don't go where you want them to go. Gee, Joe, that's extraordinary. Someday you must tell us what that's like. And they said, don't you know you're in the same boat as the rest of us? The object of your temptation may be different than the object of our temptation, but we're all dealing with some kind of temptation. And they said, look, guy, we're not going to ask of you anything we don't ask of ourselves. Get into the Word of God daily. Develop your prayer life. Be in fellowship with us. Be part of our lives. Let us be a part of yours. Be honest with us about your struggles. We'll be honest with you about our struggles. And let's grow together to be the men of God we are meant to be. Well, there it was. Now, that wasn't rocket science, was it? Let me put this just for a moment in the context of what we're facing today. Around the world, Nations are passing bans on what they call conversion therapy. Conversion therapy is a code word for any kind of counseling or ministry to someone who wants to overcome homosexuality. It is not sinister. It does not involve shock treatment or exorcism or any absurd type of conduct. It is simple talk therapy by which a counselor or a pastor says to someone, if you want to walk away from this, let me walk with you. From a biblical perspective, I will help you understand what you can expect along the way, and we will be here for you as God continues to sanctify you. That's what it is. And yet, one of the current rallying cries of the modern gay rights movement is, 
make it criminal for anyone to offer that kind of counseling. Our current administration supports that kind of a ban. It is entirely conceivable that the time will come when it will be criminal for a counselor to do what my counselor did for me. And even when that happens, the ball is going to be in the hands of the local church. But in a sense, that's good news, isn't it? Because that's where it was always supposed to be. I got good professional care from a licensed psychologist, but that's not where the healing came. The healing came within the body of Christ. Because when we come into the body of Christ, what do we bring along with us? Among other things, we bring the lies we've believed. Our bubbles are frequently made of lies, aren't they? Misconceptions we have about ourselves. Some people are born again and bring with them early wounding by which they were taught, I am stupid, I am worthless, I am unlovable, I am unacceptable. That's a very sad bubble. Other people bring in, I am wonderful, I am God's gift to you, you lucky congregation, I am fabulous. And that's another bubble that needs to be burst. And what do we do for each other when we love each other? We challenge each other's bubbles. We challenge the lies through our love, through our relating, through our commitment to each other, through our willingness to pray together, engage together, speak the truth and love to each other, what happens to all of us? We begin to believe new things. This is what God has commissioned. Now this to me is one of the most extraordinary things about being used by God. God condescends to you and I to say to you and I, there are things I wish to do in people's lives and I want you to be a part of what I wish to do. Does he need us? Yes. No. Does he condescend to use us? Absolutely. Thank you, Lord, for that. Because he does. It is his determination that members of the body of Christ be used to build each other up. And in the process, we become the holy people we are meant to become. In that process, I eventually met a young woman who, against all odds, began to feel as though she would spend a few minutes talking to me. And with time, I came to realize that I loved her and wanted her. And that was when I realized I had fallen in love. And that was when eventually, in 1987, I married my wife, Renee. And she has been my partner in ministry and the mother of my two sons for the last 35 years. Amen. While it's true <laughs> that that is, of course, a great sign of the evidence of God's grace in my life, what really brought about changes was not getting married. What really brought about changements was investment, investment in intimacy with God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If I invest in knowing him, I will love him. Investing in accountability was another investment that brought about in me the kind of, of reality check that I would need. As the author of Hebrews said, let us exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened in your hearts through the deceitfulness of sin and a lifestyle of stewardship. Paul told the Thessalonians, the will of God is that you abstain from fornication and that each of you, I love this, learn to possess your vessel with honor, that body you've been given, that mind you've been given, your emotional responses and your sexual responses. You are the manager of that vessel that you are stewarding. You will answer to the owner for the way you have stewarded it. Thereby every temptation you resist, and I learned to love this concept, Every temptation you resist becomes an act of worship. We worshiped this morning by yielding. 
You know, every time you yield to God, you're worshiping. Every time you shut your mouth when you want to say something you shouldn't say, every time you don't punch somebody out, every time you don't lust, you're worshiping because you're saying, Lord, I yield to you out of love for you. And it is in that yielding that we find exactly what Jesus promised when he said, you abide in me and I abide in you. You're going to bring forth fruit. And in this, my Father is going to be glorified. May that be said of all of our lives. Let me pray with you, please. Father, we do thank you that you have chosen us. We have not chosen you. You ordained us to bear fruit. May each of us become great fruit bearers. We pray and agree together that you will move mightily among the LGBTQ community. Send your spirit to cause them to be dissatisfied with whatever would keep them from your will and make them hungry for you. And in that hunger that you give them for you, bring them to us. Lord, we would feed them with the loaves and fishes you've given us. We want to be those who bring the bread of life and the word of truth to people. Make us a people who are ready to be used by you in the way that will most honor you so that our lives will bring you the glory that you deserve. For we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing and sharing it to all your social platforms? If you were moved by this message and you would love to share your testimony, please email it to amen at myrisechurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged and inspired. We'll see you next time.